Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by Turapev. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host. He is the he is the pilot. I'm the commander this time. I I, I just made myself the commander. It's Stephen Hackett. Hi. Oh, hey. I, I can. I'm fine with that. I'm comfortable with that arrangement. It's like space shuttle terms. The first person who goes is the is the commander, and the person who goes second is not in charge, but is called the pilot be, to make them feel better. <laughs> it's very, it's a very confusing naming <laughs> naming scheme. Ah, uh, it's good to be here. There's so much going on. I, I've got last time after we did the show, I made like a whole list of things of like uh, topics we could do. Like, oh, we haven't covered this, we haven't covered that. It's like I don't know some of these topics. I don't know when we're going to get to them because there's so much I know. going on. Every two weeks in outer space. There's a lot going on. Uh, so much that I have continued to stray from the liftoff and talk about <sighs> space things on other podcasts. Again. Again. So on my show, Mac Power Users, that I host with David Sparks here on the Relay FM network, we had a guest, uh, Andrew Burwell, who we met in Houston last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew has this amazing site called Mac Observatory. He takes uh, some amazing uh, astrophotography images, and he walked us through the whole setups, like telescopes, software, the computers he uses. It's all really complicated, but the work that he does is truly beautiful. So I have a link to that Mac Power Users episode and uh, his website in the show notes for this episode of Liftoff. If you haven't seen these, go check it out. I think that you would uh, really enjoy it. It's really amazing stuff, and he's a great guy. And was it was a lot of fun to talk to him on MPU. It's awesome. You're straying again, though. But you got lots of podcasts. Look, I'm sorry. People who don't have many podcasts don't understand that you got to fill a lot of time on a lot of podcasts. Sometimes your interests. <laughs> over, I mean, well, there's a um, you're you're doing uh, incomparable episodes too. So like we've got overlap it it bleeds out in in a bunch of different ways it's okay it happens it's it's how it's how it goes so you know mpu we interview people who do cool nerdy stuff and that fit the bill so yeah it's it's all good we did the we 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 make it work and then we follow out to that and then people can go find that stuff it's the liftoff uh expanded universe we want to talk about a bunch of spaceship stuff spacecraft we've got landers we have a lot we a lot of prefect pre-flight checklist stuff in two categories are spaceship stuff and there's science stuff and so we thought we just kind of mm-hmm. i in, in judging i judged that we could organize it like that <laughs> well, you're the you're the commander i so. guess so well pilot us through it then. all right so uh i want to start with mars insight the lander that's been on mars for a year we're going to talk about that here in a second but we've been following the pesky mole problem so insight has the adventures of the mars mole What's the Mars Mole up to, or down to, or back up to, or down to? Nothing good. Or back good. up to, Stephen. <laughs> so remember, we spoke, we've spoken about this uh, in the past, where this probe is supposed to dig its way down into the surface. It's got temperature probe and some other stuff on it, and that has been unsuccessful. It backed out of the hole. They tried pinning it. So Insight has this arm. Insight's a lander, right? Like, it is where it is. It can't move around. But it has a robotic arm. And they tried pinning, so like holding the the mole like against the side of the hole, hoping the friction would help it dig. That didn't work. And so now the plan is to use the arm to basically push the probe into the surface. 
And there's risk involved with this. Obviously, it could damage the arm, which would be bad. But the wiring that extends from the probe back to the lander passes through the cap, the end of the probe, that this arm is going to be pushing against. So there's some concern that it could damage that wiring. But from what I've read and and what I've seen, it seems like this is about the only option left. And so they're kind of going for it, hoping that it will have enough force to, to get this thing down under the surface where it's supposed to go. Come on. Come on, Mole. Let's do this. Even though the probe has been problematic. Uh, I hate a problematic <laughs> to probe. To say the least. It's the worst kind of probe. Prob- problematic probe. <laughs> uh, so even though that's been problematic, Insight has lots of other instruments. And there's been a set of papers released cataloging the findings of the first year on Insight. And we got some links to this stuff. You can go explore it. But it it kind of breaks down into um, a couple of different things. And the first one is the seismic activity. InSight, one of its primary objectives is to measure the seismic activity on Mars and try to build a picture of the interior of the planet. Now, Mars is different than Earth. It doesn't have tectonic plates like we do here, but its movement is basically volcanic in origin. It's got uh, active regions of volcanic activity, and that causes these uh, rumbles and this motion through the crust of Mars. And what's really interesting is that there have been way more seismic activities than expected, about 450 to date. So on average, that's more than one a day. And the largest registering at uh, 4.0 on the Richter scale, which is maybe a little bit... Uh, less intense than anticipated. Uh, one uh, part of the paper I read was that scientists are hopeful that they will catch, quote, the big one to really get a bigger, a better picture of what's going on. But lots of sort of frequent low-level activity going on. And some of the real low-level activity could be written off as wind or, or outside forces on the lander, but they really believe the vast majority of these are seismic incidents on Mars. So that that's all working. It, it is doing what it's supposed to do. And we're getting a picture of just how active Mars is, which is more frequent, but less intense than anticipated, which is cool. We're learning things, right? That's the point here. Uh, there's also um, a section of this research about the magnetic field on Mars, which Mars has effectively lost its magnetic field over its history. But InSight has detected what's left of it. So there are rocks between like 20 feet and even like several miles below the surface that are still magnetic. And InSight can detect those and can begin to map what what those are doing. And there's some really weird stuff going on. So the measurements vary over time and they're stronger at night, which is weird. And it's unclear why these fluctuations happen. There's some conjecture that it could be the solar wind interacting with the thin atmosphere. And maybe as the atmosphere cools at night, it's more pronounced. It's all very early days in this. But uh, Mars has uh, quite a few surprises that it's throwing our way, which is uh, really exciting. You know, you you look at Mars and you think, well, it's just a, a red rock and maybe all of its history Maybe that's when all the activity was and it's sort of dormant now. And we're getting a picture that that's really not true. Mars still is active just in ways that are really different from Earth. Yeah, it's uh, it's why we go, right? Like it's the most conveniently located explorable planet. And uh, we've only really explored the one. So this gives mm-hmm. us a lot, uh, 
there's so much we don't know, including like why the mole doesn't work right. But uh, there's so many things we don't know. So this is awesome. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, more Mars stuff. I, I guess, you know, we could we could move on to the other big, uh, big thing. Or do, is there more? Or is there more Mars uh, insight info before we move on to ExoMars? The only other thing I would add is that we know that Mars can be a very windy place. You know, we've spoken about this right. with the rovers that they get covered in dust and then uncovered and whirlwinds come by and clean off their solar panels. The lander uh, or the the site that InSight landed at is actually so far like the windiest place we've we've detected on Mars, but there have been no dust huh. devils spotted by the InSight camera. So maybe it's that it's actually too windy for those uh-huh. to form. We're not really quite sure. But uh, this definitely is in line with what we know about the wind at Mars, but it's even stronger at this location. So again, getting a better picture of what it would be like on the red planet. So speaking of Mars, there are there is a, a launch window that happens in 2020 to go to Mars. When Earth and Mars are going to be on the same side of the sun, you um, you do your launches then, and it takes much less time to get from Earth to Mars when they're on opposite sides of the sun. Right. It's very far. That doesn't work so well. Right. It's about every two it's years. about every right? two years. So we're entering a launch window now. And there's so we're going to be sending a whole bunch more stuff to Mars because Mars is exciting, like we've just been saying, and there's a lot for us to learn there. Um, and there's uh, NASA's Mars 2020 mission, which we've talked about a little bit. China is sending uh, a combination orbiter, lander, and rover that we'll have to talk about. This year, we're going to be talking about Mars probes a lot as they launch. Um, The United Arab Emirates even has a very small orbiter that they're hoping to do some good science with in Mars orbit. It's very exciting. Uh, But then there's ExoMars, and ExoMars is kind of a problem-plagued mission. This is from the Russian Space Agency as well as ESA, the European Space Agency. And there is now a serious possibility that ExoMars is not going to make the 2020 launch window, which, um, by the way, that's why you shouldn't probably call your mission Mars 2020, right? (laughs) Just in case. So ExoMars, um, if they miss this window, it's two years, basically, before they can launch. It's a two-year delay. They're going to make the decision March 12th the big issue is the parachutes. ExoMars has this dual parachute system. They have a supersonic pair of parachutes and then a uh, tr- a, a subsonic set uh, that deploys mm-hmm. lower in the atmosphere. Uh, they did a drop test back in May of 2019, and both main parachutes were damaged. They did another test uh, with a redesigned parachute system in August that also failed. They've been testing a new parachute system on the ground. We've mentioned how parachutes, SpaceX has been dealing with this too. There's a lot, you got to get the parachutes right. Uh, they've been testing the, the ExoMars parachutes on the ground and it's gone well, but they have not been able yet to test them at high altitudes. Those tests have been delayed. There's also a problem that's going on that is not related to the chute. There's a hinge that is in the solar arrays, and it was found to be defective when they did that thing that we talk about where you test these spacecraft. We've talked about this a lot with the James Webb Space Telescope. Like, you want to test this stuff in a space-like environment to make sure that everything is okay before you send it off. Well, they put ExoMars in a thermal vacuum chamber, and the glue that was holding brackets on for these hinges came unstuck. Yikes. Yeah. It's not, you don't want the glue to fall off your spaceship when it's going to Mars. Mm. So um, 
it is this is this is a you know Mars lander. It's a big deal. Um, they're trying to fix that. They're looking at the parachutes, and there's a real chance that on March 12th they're going to say we can't do this. We don't have enough confidence. I know that they're rushing mm-hmm. to you know do more tests and they want to see if they can make it, but they're running out of time. So it's a possibility that ExoMars will not be part of the 2020 Mars launch party that we thought they would be. And we we've spoken about this in context of other missions, but. Getting to the surface of Mars is not easy. A, you're moving really quickly by the time you get there, and you you don't have a lot of error breaking because the atmosphere is so thin. So these parachutes have to work perfectly. There's not going to be any forgiveness if they don't. So if this if this doesn't work, you know it's it, they really p- probably don't have a choice but to. And this delay. is uh, this is why, and we'll we'll again talk to about it later this year, hopefully. But this is why the Chinese mission is such a big deal because like they're they're going to do you know, lander rover Mars that they're trying. And it is very, very hard. Basically, if you're not the U.S., which has had a lot of success on Mars, it's been hard. Um, the Russians have done it, I think. But, like, it's 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 hard, and China's going to try it, which is great. But um, it, it is that thin atmosphere. you got to slow yourself down. you got to get the parachutes right. or Or it's a, you know, hard landing, as they like to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure your spacecraft gets turned into confetti right that's the hardest of the landings is actually the turns mm-hmm. out that landing's pretty easy to do but it, it yeah. it's a hard landing <laughs> oh yeah. i see what you mm. did there such a clever commander that's right pilot us on to the starliner oh, oh we gotta talk about this okay <laughs> we so. do we do we gotta talk about it uh, we should say that we are expecting NASA and Boeing's reports on the December flight anomalies. That should be out this week. So this is one of those things that like this may only be a story for a couple of days and then we get the real deal. But the Orlando Sentinel has been reporting on this and interviewed some people on the NASA safety advisory panel who reported that Boeing did not perform full end-to-end test with the Starliner capsule. We spoke last episode about the various problems with that. But one test that apparently didn't take place was this end-to-end integration test of Starliner coupled to the Atlas V. And if you remember, the initial problem with their uncrewed test was the mission elapse timer, where the spacecraft was off by 11 hours, where that time comes from the Atlas V. So it goes from the ground to the rocket and the rocket tells the spacecraft, this is the time that we're at and this is the time that we launch and start counting. And it's it doesn't take a, too much of an imagination to picture that had end-to-end integration testing taken place between the Atlas V and the Starliner, that this sort of issue could have popped up. Now, again, we, we haven't heard the official word on this. This may be one issue out of many. I suspect that it is. But I think the picture is coming into focus that Boeing has serious quality control issues. And if a test like this was skipped or maybe not done in the right way, that's even a bigger issue than, you know, bugs got written and not caught that you got to have these processes in place to make this stuff safe. So we will see what Boeing and NASA say this week. I'm At this point, I fully expect a second uncrewed test. I don't think NASA's going to let them put astronauts on the next Starliner. Yeah. But uh, I think we'll know by our next episode. Yeah. So we'll see. Um, I mean, they know better than we do, but it, this, all the signs look like it's not going to happen. Yeah. And th- this article in the paper 
reiterated something that we had said that, you know, Boeing has had a lot of issues with the 737 MAX. It's grounded, big software issues, um, a couple of accidents. And, you know, they said, look, th- that's a separate, that's a, th- effectively a separate company from the Boeing that works on space stuff, right? But it does raise questions of of larger um, sort of culture issues. So that may or may not be addressed in those reports, but I'm uh, interested to see what they say about that when they come out. Um, speaking of commercial crew, we got a lot of segues going on here. Uh, something that happened a couple weeks ago, right after we did our last episode, that's worth at least mentioning briefly. Um, William Gerstenmeyer, who was the head of human spaceflight at NASA for a very long time. And you may recall, mm-hmm. we talked about how Jim Bridenstine, the NASA administrator, basically kicked him out. He got removed from his post and then he retired basically, but it was a, he, he was, he was asked to leave because of the pressure that the administration and Bridenstine had been putting on human spaceflight at NASA. There was a perception that Gerstenmeier was resistant to moving fast, as fast as they wanted. And, you know, two sides to every story. I bet Bridenstine would say uh, privately that Gerstenmeier was trying to block what the president wanted him to do, which was move fast. And I bet Gerstenmeier would say they were moving too fast and it wasn't safe for the astronauts. And uh, what's the truth? I don't know. Um, I, I, I can see both sides of it. It gives me always the heebie-jeebies when there's somebody pushing from the top to go faster. And there's somebody down below saying this is too fast. And the result is they get fired. Doesn't sound great to me. But I'm sure there are other issues there, too. Anyway, Gerstenmeier has a new job. He is a consultant, but basically he got hired by SpaceX. The impression I get is everybody in the space industry knows uh, William Gerstenmeier. They know they know Gerst. They they he has contacts everywhere, and SpaceX is not only about to embark on commercial crew, but uh, is trying to play up uh, a role in in lunar missions going forward and gearing up to do Starship, which has a crewed component as well. So. The the idea here is that SpaceX now has somebody who knows everybody and knows how human spaceflight stuff works. Um, and it's a real, I think, feather in their cap that they've got him. Um, and there are a lot of people at NASA who know him. And there are a lot of people in aerospace who know him. And my impression is love him. And we're very shocked when he left NASA. So uh, we'll see how that plays out and how he might be involved in what SpaceX uh, does next with, uh, with human space flight. I think it's a super smart hire on SpaceX's part, you know, that I was a little surprised to see it. I I didn't know what he would do next, but I am glad to see that he's there. Yeah. I I think it's smart. And like, he's officially a, uh, a consultant or whatever, but like he's, he's, Mm -hmm. they're paying him to be knowledgeable for them about human space flight and NASA. And that seems really smart. Yeah, SpaceX knows what they're doing. They know how to play the game. You want to tell us about MEV-1? This is this seems like science fiction to me. I so do. I love this story. This is so good. There's a story in the New York Times this week about um, MEV-1. Now, of course, space, we're going to do a lot of acronyms today. This is the Mission Extension Vehicle. Mission Extension, that's an interesting idea. It's from uh, a division of Northrop Grumman. And what MEV-1 is, is it's a satellite that has a grappler. So we can grab other things in space and a lot of fuel. And the idea of the MEV program is you can extend the life of a satellite that has run out of fuel and is either going to be parked or deorbited, depending on where it is. Um, and and here's the challenge. Satellites are not made with like gas caps. <laughs> They're not generally built to be serviced by other satellites. 
It doesn't generally happen. Um, so you can see what's going on here. Northrop Grumman thinks that there is a market in building a satellite that is cheaper to launch and use to extend the life of an older satellite than it would be to replace that satellite, right? It's just, it's it's simple economics here. Like, what if we could make that satellite of yours that's about to die last another five years? How What would that be worth to you? And if that number is lower than, or higher than the price we would charge, let's say, or something like that, right? You do the math and you're like, oh, that's better. Let's do that. So that's what that's what Mev One did as a demo with an 18 year old satellite uh, from IntelSat. It's IntelSat 901. Uh, what IntelSat did is moved it to a different uh, orbit. So Mev One was up there. They actually moved IntelSat up to the Mev One orbit, um, taking it out of service and doing so. And uh, Mev One docked with IntelSat 901. So it came, uh, it did a rendezvous, grabbed it with its grappling system, its docking system, and is now in the process of, or, or over the next month or two, is going to push Intelsat back into an operational orbit. It will go back in operation, and it will uh, have five years more life, this 18-year-old satellite, with, with a buddy satellite attached to it. At the end of the five-year period, when it when uh, Intelsat thinks it's reached the end of its operational life, MEV-1 is then going to raise it up to a graveyard orbit, like we talked about last time, where, where it's a mm-hmm. higher orbit above the geostationary orbit, where there's not a lot of stuff, and it doesn't matter if there's dead stuff up there. It's not a big deal. So they're going to they're gonna push it up to a graveyard orbit. Um, so that's awesome. Five years uh extra life by adding a buddy satellite that can keep it operational and um that's not all the plan then is after five years is mev one will ungrapple and can go somewhere else and do it again with a different satellite reusable buddy satellite right as long as it's got propellant and and it can grapple stuff it can get to what it needs to grapple it could do this so mev two is also coming later this year um, they're going to use it for a different Intelsat satellite, and the goal this time is because you know they wasted propellant or used propellant in taking it out of service and taking it somewhere else to try this. Um, the next one they're going to do it in place. They're literally going to just drive over to where that Intelsat satellite is while it's operational and just grab it, and then extend its life by having new propellant. And the ability to move it, even though, because generally what seems to be happening, I mean, if, if something breaks, something breaks. This is not something with like robot surgery to fix a circuit board or something. Although I think that's right. the future of this stuff is that. But in the in the short term, it's uh, this satellite is costs us hundreds of millions or, of dollars. It's, it's incredibly expensive electronics. And the only thing we're missing is propellant. Well. That's what the MEV system is basically doing. It's like, we will send up a thing full of propellant and attach and move your satellite around for you. It's the great idea. Intelsat says the economics work for them, which if, if the economics can work for Intelsat and for Northrop Grumman, this is really cool because you're extending the life of this stuff. It's almost like recycling in outer space. Like you're extending the life of this. And you can see how this could get way more complicated down the road in terms of allowing uh, telepresence kinds of satellites. Um it, they're, they're, you know, the further out they are, the more of a delay there is. But when, when you think back to the Hubble um, 
missions where they had to fix the Hubble Space Telescope over the course of decades. They, you know, that was a user serviceable, <laughs> astronaut serviceable uh, thing or ISS spacewalks. You can see and you and I actually saw at least one of these at uh, at Johnson Space Center, the, you know, experimenting with uh, a robot that can crawl around on the outside of the space station and do repairs. You could also see that same kind of thing uh, po- be a possibility for one of these um, mission extension vehicle satellites to be able to potentially even do repairs, come you know, come by, do a repair mission. And if that costs less than replacing the satellite, it's totally worth it. So it's very exciting. There's a lot of this uh, being talked about. NASA has a plan to do a spacecraft that's going to attach to an old Landsat uh, satellite in low Earth orbit and and do a connection. These The MEVs are built for geostationary orbit, I believe. There's a Japanese company that we have mentioned on this podcast before that wants to make like a sticky kind of like web or arm satellite that can actually just kind of like run into space junk and st- and attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stick Capture to it, it so that um, it's no longer space debris. Um, so there's a lot of this. We're, we're entering a phase where one of the opportunities, business opportunities in space is, you know, and, and from a different angle, you see it with SpaceX reusing its vehicles, reusing its its first stages, um, that uh, you, you make this incredibly expensive satellite and you leave it up there and it's got a lifespan and then it dies and it's like a disposable satellite. And now there are companies coming along and saying, what if we could take that disposable satellite and make it recyclable instead and, and extend its life and then move it out of the way. It's great. It, it, you know, it makes access to space cheaper, right? Because it means that this stuff is serviceable and presumably over time, you know, my mind started to race as I was re- uh, reading this story, like presumably over time you would end up with things like perhaps some standard equipment, like a standard actual docking attachment and things like that, where it's like, can we all agree that the satellite's going to have this thing on it so that one of these buddies can come up later and refuel it maybe or or attach to it and move it around but there's so much that's already up there so mev is uh they figured it out like where do you grab on <laughs> how do you hold on is it going to work and uh it seems to work it's awesome it's fantastic i mean it could really help cut down on on future space debris we've, we've spoken about that on the show before how that problem is only getting worse with time and if you have collisions because you can't move a satellite then you have a lot more debris and that's dangerous. And I mean, you get, I could see where they get this to a point where they could almost deploy these, you know, to maybe mitigate an emergency right. situation. Like a couple of weeks ago, it was believed that two satellites were going to collide and they came close but didn't. And, you know, what if we could intervene with just a few weeks notice? That, that right. would be incredible. Yeah, you could sync, sync up with one of those vehicles and grab it and then just move it to a different orbit. And that in that case, one yeah. of them was, I think, a completely offline dead satellite. And like, could could you grapple that one and either deorbit it or take it up to a graveyard orbit? Wouldn't that be a great power to have, to have the ability of, of evading that kind of thing? It's, uh, it's going to happen. Like mm-hmm. it's happening right now. This is the, that, that quote that it, the economics work for us for Intelsat. Like it is worth it to them to pay Northrop Grumman to move their satellite around rather than lose it. It's a great idea. So I love it. So do we want to get into the uh, science part of the pre-flight yeah. checklist? Science, it's science time. You want to talk okay. about uh, the the ultra-hot Jupiter? <laughs> I do. This is a, a fun exoplanet story. So this uh, is exoplanet is a hot Jupiter 
that has been found. Uh, its designation is NGTS-10B. Again, the, the names are... Not really... an acronym, though. At least it's got that going for it. Well, it probably no. is. It's probably yeah. the something tele- telescopic survey or something. It probably is an acronym, actually. Damn it. You can't, you can't escape them. They're everywhere. <laughs> They're everywhere. They are everywhere. So this uh, is uh, a little bit weird because this exoplanet orbits its star every 18 hours, which is a record for a hot Jupiter. It's actually a lot larger than Jupiter. It's a massive yeah. Yeah, gas it's, it's giant. Yeah, it's like two times the mass and 1.2 times the, the size or mm-hmm. something like that. So it's a huge thing orbiting incredibly close to its star. And you would think that because it's so big and it's so close, well, these would be easy to see, right? Because they would... They would stand out more the ways that we find exoplanets, but all the ways, right? The tugging on the star would be more visible um, if it's eclipsing mm-hmm. the star and and dipping the light down. It would on that method, it would be super visible. Like this, we've because we've seen a lot of close-in planets and 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 hot Jupiters in exoplanets. That's been a discovery because we don't have anything like that. Mm-hmm. So you'd think there'd be a lot like this one, and there aren't. They're not. Uh, by the way, it is. It does stand for something. It's the Next Generation okay, Transit Survey. So, survey, yeah. So anyways, this was found via the transit method. But it's perhaps not so common to find these because they get ripped apart yeah. by the gravity <laughs> of being so close to their death star. spiral, right? Like if, if, they, if that orbit is not long-term sustainable and it all kind of falls apart, then we wouldn't see a lot of them. And then we would be lucky to catch right. one like like this guy. Although you know, my understanding is that they, they're going to do more observations on this with new uh, new equipment and try to figure out, because yeah. that's one of the real questions. Is, is this a stable orbit? And if so, how? Or is this planet just spiraling into its death to be ripped apart and swallowed by its its buddy star? Do we just catch it in its final acts? And so, yeah. And, and if it is unstable and, and we see it, you diminish in size over time, and that would maybe answer this question that no hot Jupiters can exist as close to a star because they get eaten alive. Uh, or maybe it's just an outlier. Maybe that it is stable and this one just found a happy medium and it's just a, an oddity. So either way, I think we will hear more about this in the coming years. Yeah, good. I love love it. I always I always say when we talk about exoplanets, it's like, you know, it wasn't that long ago we had no idea. And now we know all these know. things about exoplanets. It's <laughs> yeah. amazing. I have a science update that's sort of a spaceship update, but I don't know. I stuck it in the science part. It's, uh, it's uh, Chang'e, the Chinese... Uh, mission to the moon, Chang'e 4. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was a, a scientific study, which is why I put in the science section, that used data from the Chang, Chang'e 3 uh, lander, uh, which has like a radar, ground penetrating radar thing. The U2 rover has great, I think, the ground penetrating radar. So they, they did some like, let's look down here at the lunar regolith in uh, the, in the, in the crater that they're in. And, what they think is that the lunar soil or the regolith, which is the fine grained stuff, is way thicker and like deeper on the surface of the moon than originally thought in this crater that it could be as much as 130 feet deep. Whoa. And they, they thought it was going to be a lot less than that, that they, you get down to the basalt, the volcanic rock faster. Um, there are 
that's about you know four times as as deep as maybe they thought. And is it like that everywhere on the moon? Who knows? Maybe it's in this crater. Who knows? But it's an interesting use of technology that on Earth is used to like find archaeological sites and things, um, stuff in the ground. And and the the rover was able to spot like down a certain way. There are some boulders and stuff, but there's still it's still kind of like a regolith layer, and you got to go way down to get to the. Um, to get to the basalt. And uh, there are a lot of caveats. This is early stuff. Um, there are some frequencies that they couldn't even use because they found there was a scientific study that used some of the frequencies from a previous rover. And then it turned out that it was the metal bodies of the rover were actually the metal body of a rover can distort the results hmm. and so some of those results weren't any okay. good. So they didn't even use them for this study. But it's still um it's still a fun thing that although it advances science a little bit, I think one of the scientists in the in the story that we'll put in the show notes said was, um, I, I got the impression this is also interesting from a functional standpoint of like the tools we use like to get this radar to the moon on a rover and then to use it. Like it's really interesting from that perspective of, of taking these tools that we've got to a different location and then using them there. And that, you know, that obviously expands the possibility and you think about doing that um, on other worlds as well. But uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's deep. They're in the deep stuff on, uh, on the moon. <laughs> and I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It- so it may be that with with more data uh, that they can filter out this uh, noise from the rover bodies and and learn to ignore that better and see what's actually going on. So I think that's sort of ongoing work to fine tune what they're getting back. How do you engineer it to to work even better at the other frequencies too? And then I have a, a mm-hmm. super weird story, science story that I want to mention uh, because it's awesome. It's about how uh, the sun and whales are connected. Sure. Okay. I love this idea. So uh, a biologist and an astronomer collaborated, and it's this new study that suggests a relationship between the 11-year, as discussed here, 11-year solar cycle and whales and whales stranding themselves, being found stranded on, on land. Okay. And so they did analysis of sunspot activity, and they did analysis of whale strandings and tried to find a correlation. And they feel that there is one. Way more work needs to be done. But it's really interesting. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's that's ridiculous. That wh- How would those be connected? Here's the theory. A lot of animals use the Earth's magnetic field to navigate. Um, a lot of times they study these things by like putting birds in boxes and <laughs> and putting big magnets and like seeing what the birds do. Uh, and you can't put a whale in a big box, so it's harder. But it's it's thought really that these whales box. who do these enormous migrations every year um, might also be using Earth's magnetic fields to navigate. And the magnetic field is affected by sunspot activity. And the theory is that that there's a solar, there's radio frequency noise essentially being put out by uh, uh, this during a solar storm by the sun that may actually sort of interfere in some way with the magnetic navigation that the whales use and that that so at those moments of heightened solar activity the whales navigation their you know whale gps goes on the fritz a little bit and that leads to them going off course and getting stranded and being confused um so the data's you know there are people are like i don't know we'll see it seems like a little weird we got to check this data there's definitely some skepticism which is which is warranted i think but it's a fun story the idea that um you know 
that sunspots make whales go off course. That that may actually be a thing. That whales are so attuned to the magnetic uh, magnetic field of the Earth that a solar storm can knock them off course. It's a cool idea. It's sad for the whales, though. Yeah. We got to say that. Every 11 years, watch out, whales. <laughs> buy a compass. Just kidding. At the whale, where? The whale store? Is that where they buy that? I don't know. It's where they get the big whale boxes. No, Stephen, they buy it at Whale Mart. Oh, my. Oh, oh no. Let's move on. This show's over. <laughs> it's not over. We have lots more to talk about. First, I want to tell you about our sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Turapev Technologies. Turapev believe in creating modern tools for the astronomy community. Whether you're a professional astronomer, an amateur, a student, or just a lover of the night skies. And these tools are for Apple platforms and the web. Both. Some professional astronomers are using outdated, poorly designed, underpowered, and overcomplicated apps to control their expensive instruments. And they're mostly only made for the English-speaking community, leaving a lot of people out. The team at Turapev Technologies have gathered a team of professional and amateur astronomers who are also experienced macOS and iOS developers, along with some of the best designers, all bursting with ideas for what the future of astronomical computing should look like. They're aiming to create astronomy tools for the 21st century for image capturing and processing, control of astronomical instruments, storage, analysis, and distribution of astronomical data in the cloud, this all being ready for real-world use in modern astronomy, space science research labs, amateur observatories, and schools, along with a multilingual platform for everyone who loves the night sky and outer space. If you want to get early access to their tools and be one of the first to join their global community, go to starcluster.app slash liftoff to join their email newsletter, and you'll find out more as they... As they uh, Move closer to this future. That's starcluster.app slash liftoff to join their email newsletter. Our thanks to Turapev Technologies for their support of this show and Relay FM. It's time, Jason. It's time, everybody, for... So gather around. It's the SLS segment, Space Launch System segment, explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. Thank you. You're beautiful. welcome. <laughs> We're going to start with Orion, which I always feel conflicted about putting this in the SLS segment. Sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't. It's in it this time. NASA has carried out testing for Orion's Attitude Control Motor, or the ACM. This provides steering for the capsule's launch abort system, which, of course, can pull Orion away from the SLS if things go sideways, either on the ground or before they separate in the atmosphere after launch. The launch uh, escape system for Orion has three components. has the abort motor, which pulls the crew module away from the launch vehicle. Uh, the ACM, which just got tested, which steers and orients the capsule. So it, depending on where they are, if they're on the ground or if they've already launched and they're, they're flying in the atmosphere, you can get the capsule pointed the right way, get it where the parachutes are going to be up. It's all very important. And then there's the jettison motor, which will separate the 
launch abort system from Orion itself prior to parachute deployment. Because remember, this sits on top of Orion. It's got to get out of the way so parachutes can do their thing. Uh, so that is the last part to test is that jettison motor. But so far, everything else has checked out. So it's it's good progress on Orion, making sure that it's safe for astronauts to, to be aboard in case something goes wrong, which uh, can happen with these things, as we mm-hmm. no doubt know. A little bit about the SLS as well. Uh, NASA now considers April 18th, 2021 as the, quote, no earlier than uh, date for the first SLS test flight, Artemis 1. This was previously uh, in, I think, November of 2020, but we're now looking at April 2021 for uh, the NET date. Not a huge surprise, probably, but that's that's where it stands. Yeah, I love I love the idea of the no earlier than date. I just love it. It's the, look, <laughs> don't even make any plans before this date. Like, there's no way it would happen before then. So that's next year. <sighs> we didn't say this was going to be the year of the SLS. Are we going to, well, I, I am looking forward to coming to the end of a year, looking forward to the next year, and actually wondering if SLS might launch that year. Because it hasn't mm-hmm. happened yet. I'll uh, check back mm-hmm. in 11 months. <laughs> Things, of course, are still moving. I want to talk a little bit about Kennedy's Launch Control Center, which is that little like bunker of a building next to the Vehicle Assembly Building in Florida. They are hosting simulated countdowns of the SLS launch. The entire countdown itself is about 45 hours and 40 minutes long. It's actually about 24 hours shorter than the Space Shuttle's countdown. And it contains two built-in holds, one before fueling operations, and then a 30-minute hold at T minus 10 minutes so they can run through anything and, and have a, a, a stop point if anything is is off from what it should be. And these simulations will continue along with anomalies and issues being inserted for training and problem solving. So we've spoken about that before, that during simulation, engineers will cause problems for the flight controllers to work through to test their knowledge, test the process. And of course, they also come up with real problems uh, in the software, right? You can just run into bugs. And so these simulations are going to continue. Now we know they have a little more time with that NET date slipping. But this is a part of building a new system, building a new rocket that is critically important, right? It's not just about the hardware and the software, but it's about all the people who manage all that stuff and a lot of that happens at launch and then it gets you know handed off during flight and during a mission but a lot happens during that countdown and those seconds where it's leaving the pad and all it's got to go perfectly so this team is going to be continuing to work um, in this outfitted room that's totally been redone since the shuttle days all new equipment and new processes to get sls off the ground in 2021 or sometime later we'll see Good. The ball we'll continues to roll. We have talked here about the different classes of NASA planetary missions. You know, there are the big the big flagship missions. They're kind of like the mid-tier missions. And then there are the small missions, which are called Discovery Class. And um, we have been discussing the candidates for those missions. And the way they work is that there's a big pool and they're given a little bit of money by NASA. And then over time... NASA reduces the size of the pool, gives the teams more money to do the next stage in development. And then ultimately, it picks winners, and they're fully funded, and those are the next kind of small planetary missions from NASA. So we are in the 
the development process now for the next set of planetary science missions in the Discovery class. Um, If you're curious, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter is actually a Discovery mission. Mars Insight is a Discovery mission. So those are two examples of this class of budget. And uh, coming in, uh, let's see, in 20, what is it? Lucy is going... Uh, in this year, I think, to seven asteroids, or maybe it's next year. And then mm-hmm. um, in 2023, Psyche is going to an asteroid, a big uh, metal-rich asteroid. So there are two uh, Discovery Program missions coming in the next few years that are uh, asteroid-focused. So for this round, they have uh, NASA has cut the Discovery mission list to four teams, each of which was given a $3 million award to continue working on their potential missions. They get nine months to develop their mission plan and concepts related to the mission, if they are things they need to build. Anything else that sort of like uh, meets these criteria of getting it to the point where they've got a, uh, they're making their pre- presentation to NASA and saying, here's what we've we've done. So they're going to develop all of that in the next nine months. Um, they will present that to NASA. NASA will choose a winner. They could choose two winners, which is, I believe, what happened the last time. No more than two will be fully funded. So... There are four semifinalists. One or two of them will be funded as discovery missions. So I thought I would run through them. And Stephen, there are acronyms. Ooh, I'm ready. I'm ready to judge. First up is VERITAS, which stands for Venus Emissivity Radio Science INSAR Topography and Spectroscopy. I'm going to give it like a six out of 10. I, it's okay. My issue here is that one of the, the I stands for INSAR, which is itself an acronym. Yeah, you've, you've doubled up. Verinsaritas is not as good. So uh, Veritas map, will map the surface of Venus. It's a Venus mission. We love Venus. Hooray. Venus, as we've talked about many times here, doesn't get a lot of love from NASA's planetary science. It's right there. <laughs> and we should probably send more things to Venus. So Veritas will map the surface of Venus. And guess what? The second of the four finalists, also a Venus mission. So there's a pretty decent chance that... Oh, I shouldn't even say this. There's a pretty decent chance that yeah, that both of them say. will be rejected and <laughs> nobody will go to Venus again. But uh, the other one there it is. is Da Vinci Plus, because everything's got a plus on the end of it now. Here's what it stands for. Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, Chemistry, and Imaging. Plus. <laughs> plus know. what? I don't know. It's, it is the plus technically mm. part of the acronym. It's just a plus symbol on the end, and it stands for... I, I don't know. Uh, anyway, so the noble, noble gases, the G isn't in there, but it's they got they got uh, deep atmosphere Venus. That's pretty good. It's an atmospheric probe. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look at the atmosphere of Venus and gases surrounding Venus and uh, try to understand some things about Venus's history, if it ever had oceans, lots of cool stuff. Um, what's your rating on Da Vinci Plus? Other than the plus, I really like it, but that that hurts me a little bit. I agree, I agree. Uh, I, I do wonder about that. They only did the one thing, one where they where they escaped by not capitalizing the gases and noble gases, but it's mm-hmm. it's fine. Um, next up, we move to the outer solar system for the other two. It's very exciting. See, this is the thing: is the outer solar system is so exciting, and we go there so rarely. And Venus is like, I'm right here. Come on, people, I'm right here. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, but what we could send Ivo. To Io. Ivo is the Io volcano observer. 
That's a very good name. I agree. I think this is a great acronym. In fact, it's so good that I feel like you don't even need it. You know, you would just call this the IO Volcano Observer uh, or uh, obser- Observer. See, easy. To, uh, Ivo it is then. Can't even say Observer. Mm-hmm, Ivo it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ivo uh, does what it says on the tin. It is going to check out IO's volcanoes, IO, Moon, and Jupiter. Vol- the only other volcanically active body that we know of, traditionally volcanically active, it's got it gets squeezed by Jupiter's gravity and it's it's just covered with volcanoes. And so Ivo would uh, you know see what's up with Io's volcanoes, which I think is uh, I think that's cool. Like that's a natural. It's a, a really interesting world, and uh, we would be looking at the volcanism on Io. It's a crazy moon, and you know we've talked about this in t- in terms of Juno, but being near Jupiter is really difficult. You have a lot of radiation that kills spacecraft. You got a lot of gravity to contend with, but visiting Io is important. And I think this would be a and keep in a mind these pick. are the discovery missions. So these are the cheap missions. So this is a cheap outer solar system mission, which is pretty cool. It makes the last one even cooler, though. Yeah. So this is my favorite. I'm just gonna say it. This is my as much as I like Venus, and I think we should do more Venus science. This is my favorite of the four. First off, it's called Trident. Stephen, any guesses what Trident stands for? Mm. Well, it's going to an, uh, Triton, the moon. So Triton, uh, so the TRI is Trident uh, Discovery. I'm going to stop you there. Something. Trident okay. is just a name. Oh! <laughs> it has no acronym. Not an acronym. It's just Trident because it's going to Triton. Triton, the sea god who holds a trident in his hand. Yeah. And Triton, of course, named a sea god because of Neptune, also a sea god. Triton is the large moon of planet Neptune. I think generally thought that it's probably a captured Kuiper Belt object. Right. We've been to Neptune once with Voyager 2. One time Mm -hmm. to Neptune. Neptune is a really interesting planet with a really interesting big moon. Neptune is at the edge of the solar system. It has huge gravitational influence. Neptune is so interesting, and we've been there once. Uranus, too, one time, blew past it. This would also be a flyby, because honestly, for this kind of price, you don't go all the way out to the outer solar system and then go into orbit around Neptune. I I don't think they got the money for that. But it would fly by Triton. It would see what it can see about Triton, including whether it is part of the club that it's thought maybe it is with other worlds like Europa, um, where it's got a subsurface ocean, like that there's a liquid ocean there. But we don't know a lot about Triton because we only really get to see it from all those uh, photos as Voyager blasted past it and then from a far distance now. So that's Trident. Like, let's get a let's get an eye on Triton and uh, fly past Neptune again, which would be pretty awesome. So those are the four. One or two of them will be chosen in the next nine months, uh, or or we'll, they'll deliver the reports in nine months, and maybe in a year we'll know what one of our new discovery program, one or two, will be. Yeah. So you said Trident was your favorite. I agree. I think it's my favorite, too. Do you have a, a, a runner-up, a second one that you would fund? <sighs> you know... I, I, you know, the, the call of the outer solar system is so strong, but as I feel like we have talked so much about how Venus gets short shrift in, in NASA planetary budgets that I think it's got to be one of the, the Venus missions. And I don't know enough about these two missions to say which is better, but I would say one of the Venus missions needs to be the second place because 
as much as I love the outer solar system, I don't think you could you can just turn your back on Venus like we have. Yeah, agreed. I kind of lean towards Da Vinci Plus. <laughs> I, I feel like the atmosphere of Venus is just plus. so interesting and, and maybe something. And it's got a plus in the name. Yeah. Um, an atmosphere probe, you know, we could we could explore the the upper limits of that atmosphere. Where I mean, don't get me wrong, the the surface of Venus is also fascinating. I am just like totally taken. My breath is taken away anytime I come across those images from the Russian probes that landed on the surface. Like it's you know, just a handful yeah. of images. And to learn more about that would also be cool. But the atmosphere is so interesting. There's potential lessons we can learn about what happens as an atmosphere warms up, which is something mm-hmm. that we're facing here on our planet. So I vote Trident and Da Vinci Plus. Uh, also lays the groundwork for that balloon, that like Venus balloon right. mission that we all want to see, where they where we put a, a balloon in Venus's atmosphere because we could totally do that, and that would be awesome, but more expensive than uh, this class of program. But still, it would be awesome. So yeah, let's go back to Venus, but also let's go back to Neptune. So we want to wrap up this week by remembering. Uh, two members of the the NASA family, the uh, space industry greats who have passed away this month. The first is Katherine Johnson, who we spoke about uh, in relation to Hidden Figures, where her story is captured. We talked about that on Liftoff episode 48. If you remember, she was one of the computers at NASA, an actual human computer. That's where that term was first used, doing um, all of the math and being... Black being a woman at NASA in her time was super rare, and she faced just unbelievable challenges and really an inspiring story. And she uh, she passed away at 101 um, after an amazing, amazing career working on trajectory analysis for Guys like Alan Shepard and John Glenn. And John Glenn gave her that ultimate endorsement where, like, he he was like, can can you get— Katherine Johnson to check these numbers because mm-hmm. uh, if she says it's okay, then I trust you. And it was like, wow, that was that was the ultimate endorsement for the from the astronaut to say, why don't you have her run the numbers? And she did go on. I mean, she was at NASA for a very long time, and she did work on on Apollo on the uh, the rendezvous calculations for the lunar module and the and the command and service module. Um, after the the limb came up from the moon, she worked on that too. And uh, and hidden hidden figures tells you the story like. Stuff like how there were very few women's bathrooms, and then there were also very few bathrooms for black women. There weren't, like, so she just used a, mm-hmm. a bathroom that she wasn't supposed to use and didn't tell anybody, and nobody said anything. And, like, it's just, it, all, she had to face a whole lot. Uh, and, and in her life, her husband died young, um, and then she remarried. Like, there's, it's, a, it's a great story. Everybody should just go watch hidden figures it's a great movie and then we you can listen to us talk about it in episode 48 too but and she's got a building named for her at langley i want to say which is where she worked in maryland um which is also pretty great that from from her origins and all the things she had to fight that by the end she was really a revered figure in nasa and in the space community a real amazing story do you want to tell us about Julius Montgomery? Yeah, Julius Montgomery passed away at the age of 90. He was the first African-American man to work at Cape Canaveral in any role other than janitor. That's sort of how you have to put it. That was that was wow. his trailblazing moment. He went to the uh, Tuskegee Institute as a, as a boy or as a young man. He joined the Air Force. While in the Air Force, he did a bunch of top secret work on spy 
satellites. He worked uh, technically on the receiving stations where they got the messages back from the spy satellites that were in orbit. Um, when he left the Air Force, he went out into the private sector and applied for a whole bunch of other technical jobs. And uh, this will not come as a surprise to you. He was told that they did not hire black people to do those jobs. Mm. So in the end, what he ended up being uh, was hired by RCA, who uh, was working as a, I think, subcontractor at Cape Canaveral to uh, work on electronics. And so so he was finally hired as an electronics con- technician at Cape Canaveral for RCA. He was one of the range rats, they called them, and these people who were going around on the on the firing range and fixing electronics and missiles and satellite equipment, all sorts of stuff like that. So he did uh, at Cape Canaveral. He, he finally got back to doing what he was doing at the Air Force, which was um, a lot of uh, technical work um, and engineering, you know, electronics technician work. Um, and then after he left, he still was blazing some trails. Um, he was the first African-American member of the Mel- Melbourne, Florida City Council. Um, and as a footnote to that, he was also the only African-American member of that city council for decades thereafter. So he was, uh, a, he was, he, he faced a lot of things different from Katherine Johnson, but he faced a lot of adversity in becoming a, uh, a notable member of the uh, the the space world in the early days of space exploration. So Julius Montgomery was 90, and uh, we remember both of them at the end of this episode of Liftoff. If you want to read more about the stories we talked about this week, you can head over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 118. While you're there, you can become a member and support the show directly. You can send us an email with feedback or follow-up, or you can find us on Twitter. Jason is there as Jay Snell, and you can follow me there as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.